This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan-Nathan. With me, the Lennon of the McCartney-Lennon duo. (laughs) (laughs) That's strong. (laughs) We'd like to talk it up, mate. But you know what? You know what we forgot this week? Yeah, I know. I, I literally you, like, oh, I probably should have said that somewhere in the intro of the last one we did. We hit no, the double century. How blase it all is, mate. Yeah, that's yeah, it. We just, that's it. Uh, just uh, knocked it on to, uh, to, to mid on. It took an easy yeah. single and forgot all about it. <laughs> Celebrating. Well, it, it, only gets, it only notches up as 100 anyway. So uh, it, right. and if you make it double, triple, quadruple, whatever it is, so. But, yeah, you're right. We probably should have acknowledged it. 200 episodes. Congratulations. Yeah, you too, mate. Uh, 200. I mean, you've got to sit down and think about that for a second. I remember when we were jumping up and down when we got to 20. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and and just just to put some reference around that, um, at the same time, we've, we've also just ticked over uh, just over 39,000 downloads. So No, it's, uh, it's, it's clicked over to 40, mate. Oh, it's done it since then. Cheapers. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. 40,000 downloads. Well, there you go. The last few weeks, it's been quite speedy. Imagine if you had a dollar for every download, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not think about that, Leon. <laughs> uh, well, mate, uh, our special guest this evening, um, someone who I kind of know, um, but it'll be good to get to know her a little bit better. Her name is Kim Cairns. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, can you give us the title or your current title? Because, I mean, I just, I remember you obviously from your previous life, but you hold, you, you know, you've just told us before we got online that you've got a new position. What is that? Um, so, my new position is NT team leader for volunteering NT. Right. So, mm. What's that all about? So Volunteering NT is uh, it's a division of Volunteering SA and NT um, and basically it's um, a not-for-profit organisation um, that is the um, peak body for volunteering in the, in the Northern Territory. Um, so we support um, volunteering involving organisations, so any organisation that um, and we also support volunteers, individual volunteers as well. So, um, you know, we, we see volunteering as a, a very important part of, of life um, and um, and it's our job to, you know, support those organisations and, and those people that want to volunteer. Okay. And so how is that funded? Um, so currently we're funded um, as a division of um of South Australia, we're currently funded partially by the Department of Social Services, so Commonwealth funding, and um, and then South Australia also funded from um, South Australian government. Um, pretty much that's about all the funding we currently have. Um, we do get a grant every year from the NT government to run the um, National Volunteer of the Year Awards at the end of the year, um, but don't actually receive any other funding from NT government at this point. Okay, so we'll get into that in a bit more detail uh, in a little while. But uh, before we get to that, why don't you tell us what your story is? <laughs> My story? 
Um, where would you like me to start? <laughs> well, I think you're a banana bender, aren't you? I am a Queenslander, <laughs> yes. Uh, With a surname like Cairns, you'd have to be, wouldn't you? What's <laughs> <laughs> uh, my married name? So um, <laughs> I I was born in Brisbane um, and, yeah, had, uh, and grew up in Brisbane, went to school in Brisbane, um, went to university at Brisbane. Um, studied to be a senior um, secondary, I was a secondary teacher, um, geography and science. Um, when I finished university, I um, had the option of my first teaching post to be Dumaji or Bowen, and I chose Dumaji um, because I figured that you could go to Bowen anytime you like. It's just up the north coast. Mm. Um, whereas who's going to go to Dumaji? It's not somewhere you just drive through and see. Um, my father was not real impressed at that point. He's like, mm. oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, he had a friend teaching in Burketown, which is not far from Dumaji. So those people that don't know where Dumaji is, it's up in the up in the Gulf, um, like really, really up in the Gulf in the very, very far corner, um, about two hours from the Northern Territory border. Um, so anyway, I packed up and went to Dumaji and taught there for three years. Um, while I was there, I um, met um, my to-be husband, now ex-husband, Sean, um, and he was there with his father's construction company. Um, I had decided at that stage that I'd seen enough of the Gulf and I wanted to go and see the Cape. So um, transferred to Cooktown, spent three years in Cooktown um, teaching there, um, managed to teach everything other than geography and science. Um, taught <laughs> home. I actually taught maths for, for a little while, which is, was great, a um, bit of English, a um, bit of home ec, um, yeah, you name it, in remote areas you teach whatever whatever mm. needs needs be. So, um, so absolutely love Cooktown. Um was doing amazing things there with um, environmental programs with the kids and um, teaching senior geography finally, which I really loved. Um, and then um, my, um, my partner at the time, um, Sean, had the opportunity to move to Boralula to run a construction car, take over his uncle's construction company. So um, he followed me to Cooktown, so I guess I had no choice but to follow him to Boralula, which was... <laughs> um, exactly the same location as Dumaji, just on the Northern Territory side of the border. So mm. um, it was almost like going back to Dumaji. So went, um, yeah, went to went to Boralula and got the job there as um, senior teacher, so effectively like deputy principal, ended up um, as acting principal for the last six months before I had my first son. And um, from that point then decided to, Give up teaching and um, and help Sean run the run the construction company, um, Cairns Industries, which we had started by then. So, um, and then yeah, sixteen years later, and I'm now with volunteering NT. Hmm. So, so we skimmed it. That was the that was the dirty version. <laughs> that was the short. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back there and, and pick up the entrails a little bit. Um, yeah. You are you a, a, an only child, or you've got brothers and sisters? I have one sister. Yeah, one younger sister. She still lives in Brisbane, um, and she's a lawyer. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and like, I lived in Brisbane for a year, and 
I don't think I ever met anybody from Brisbane when I was there. So, <laughs> <laughs> what is it about Queenslanders? Where, where are you all hiding? <laughs> Everyone I knew growing up was from Brisbane. So, right. So, which which suburb did you live in? Um, I lived in Board Hills, which is uh, one of the northernmost suburbs of Brisbane. Is it is it past? Uh, is it is it Albany? Is that, is it, yeah, it's, it's sort of a little bit further south than Albany, Albany Creek. Yeah, oh, Albany Creek. That's what yeah, yes, but right. close. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and uh, and which school did you go to? Also, just um, not too far away. So which one was that? Sorry, Aspley High School. Aspley. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yes, right. Yeah, good footy yeah. team in Aspley. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny. My um my formal partner, you told formal partner, is actually Brad was Brad Dawn. Okay. Um, He's now the Queensland Reds coach. Yeah, yeah. And has played for the Broncos and just about. He's a dual uh, international, isn't he, Brad Thorne? He's actually done, I think, just about everything there is to do in yeah, both yeah. rugby league and rugby league. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of the rare ones. He's an absolute legend in New Zealand, apparently. They, they, <laughs> yeah. they think he's a god. So, yeah. so you're yeah. a prom queen then? Um, no, <laughs> it, it was funny. He actually played AFL in year 12. So, um, yeah, you know. He would have been very good in the forward line, nice and tall. Yeah. Put the hands up. Yes, I'm not, I'm not particularly tall, so um, had very high, high heels <laughs> uh, for our photos at our form, uh, yeah. And what did your parents do in Brisbane? Um, so my dad was a cartographer and um, so started working. Yes, absolutely. Well, both of my parents are also very um, heavily into scouting. Always have been their entire lives. So, grew up as a as a scouting daughter and was dragged along to many scouting events and camps. So, I think that definitely had a lot to do with it as well. Um, we certainly never um, stayed in motels or hotels growing up. It was always camping. Mm. Um, so, I think that definitely um, instilled that. Yeah the geography, especially the environmental side in me. Yeah. So, um, and my mum, she was pretty much a stay-at-home mum while we were younger and then she had a variety of different jobs um, in schools and and that and then she actually went and worked and had one of the very few paid roles working for Scouts Australia um, in an administration role as well. So, um, so, yeah. So Scouts and Girl Guides are like two different organisations, right? They are. So I was actually a girl guide. Mm. But that's because Don't I'll, mix them up, Leon. No. I joined before they actually allowed girls in scouts, so I had no mm. choice. I had to be a girl guide. But, yes, they are definitely two different organisations. <laughs> and do they have two different mottos? Um, they will have two different mottos, yes. Don't ask mm. me to tell you what they are because <laughs> yeah, I yeah. don't remember. But I'm just trying to remember the do. scouts one now. Be prepared, I thought. Oh, the, yes. I was just about to say, is it be afraid? <laughs> be afraid. <laughs> be prepared. <laughs> right, so they're, they're, they're in some difficulty now, are they, uh, along with the church, is it? Or am I have I got that all wrong? Are they? Uh, are the I think there might have been some issues there, actually. I thought the scouts in uh, the US were bankrupt or something, or maybe uh, in I don't know. I don't honestly follow it, but um, right. I don't know. As far as, far as I know, Scouts Australia are doing just fine. So, right, right. Yeah. Well, they had some similar yeah. issues to the church when it came to little kids. Um, 
I'm not speaking out of mm. school, but I, I, that's what I thought I read in newspapers mm-hmm. anyway. Just say allegedly and no one can hold allegedly. you to account. Alleg- <laughs> that's right. The, the, the Stephen Colbert defense allegedly. Oh, <laughs> uh, gosh. So, and your sister, she did the same. She followed you into the scouts and away. Um, she was a girl guide as well, yes, yes, yes. Her um, her youngest daughter actually was just, um, had just become a Joey Scout on the weekend, so... Um, sorry, not her oldest daughter. Yeah, just become a Joey Scout on the weekend. So she's following in the footsteps as well. What's a Joey Scout? Joey Scout. So they, it goes Joey Scout, Cub Scout, Scout, Venturer, Rover. So they're the different ages, oh, wow. diff- different levels. Are, yeah. they, are these new? I remember back in the day it was, we used to call it Cubs and then Scouts and then. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so Joey Scouts is. Oh, it's probably not new anymore, but yeah, it's okay. it's the newest. Right. Yeah. So okay, they'd be so quite young, wouldn't they? Yeah, she's just turned seven. So okay, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so sorry about that, but I just looked it up. Yes, Boy Scouts of America files for bankruptcy and step towards sexual abuse. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I, it was, I wasn't imagining it. <laughs> but that's completely separate to Scouts Australia. Yeah. And separate to girl guys. We've already heard yes. that bit. Yeah. <laughs> we. we I remember really enjoying the Girl Guide cookies. Do they still do that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but I honestly couldn't stand them. I hated those biscuits. I really Uh, did. So, yeah, I don't know. So this little thread kind of explains a little bit about you, Kim, you know, sort of involving in the Girl Guides and um, and, and fundraising and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of a, a theme that's sort of come back. It, it is. It's. I mean, um, being in the not-for-profit space is something I think I've always wanted and um, owning and running a construction company was not my dream um, but, you know, it was something that I did to support Sean and, um, you know, support our family. And But in saying that, I learn a lot from it as well. That has definitely helped me in the position that I have now. But I think the thing that I really enjoyed the most Having, having the business and having Cairns Industries was the ability to be able to give back um, by sponsoring events and, you know, helping different organisations because we were in a position to be able to do that. Mm. Um, and I think it, that's what sort of clicked in me last year and, and where I realised that that's what I want to do and that's the space I want to be in. Um, and then this job come up about the same time, so, you know, it was obviously just meant to be. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, did you, when you said you went to uni, so which uni was that, by the way? Uh, Griffith. Okay, so that's yeah. sort of down, so that was quite a bit, a bit of a drive for you then. It was a train trip and a bus trip every day. Yeah, it took about two hours <laughs> to get there and two hours to get home every day. So mm. unless I could bum a lift with my dad who was working in the city and he'd drop me off in the city and then I'd just catch a bus from there. So, yeah. yeah did it you was- enjoy your degree there at Griffiths? Yeah, I did actually. Um, I really, yeah, I really did enjoy it. I think um, for me it wasn't, um, I, I enjoyed the geography aspect and that was what was important to me. I really wanted to teach geography and I really wanted to impart, you know, that information onto to our next generation. It does disappoint me a little bit at the moment because I see that disappearing in schools. Um, there's a big focus on history now but not so much on geography and it's um, it's sort of it's starting to die, I think. Like I, when I look at the subject selections for my kids, you know, geography is not, not necessarily an option for them or it's just, you know, fold in with the other subjects um, 
So uh, that disappoints me a little bit because I think it's um, I think it's really important. Geography is the thing that mm. you know it, we learn about the world, how it works, and how we interact with people, how we interact with our environment, and it's it's day to day stuff. So. So, what is geography beyond memorizing capital cities? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more than that, Leon. Absolutely, it's it's about people and it's about the environment. So, it's about you know, and it's about how people interact with the environment. How that? So, I mean, you've got you can have demographic geography where you learn about um, you know urban sprawl and you know all those like into town planning and all those sorts of things and you've got your environmental side of it um, learning about natural disasters learning about you know environmental issues um, it's there's lots of different um different aspects to geography but yeah am i right in saying we used to learn about vegetation and things like that absolutely you, yeah I, I remember my parents era sort of um saying that uh, you know a bit counter to what you just said leon we didn't learn so much about actual geography as in cities and, you know, countries in the world, but it was more about Australian vegetation and things like that. It was quite interesting as well. I mean, geography is a great subject for excursions as well. Like I remember we did um, at school, we did excursions to um, to Caloundra, like, you know, of the Sunshine Coast. And then I got lucky enough for me teaching in Cooktown, I got to take excursions to, you know, uh, World, World Heritage Daintree and, mm. and the Great Barrier Reef and places like that. So, you know, that's a bonus. Mm. Well, I have to confess, uh, you know, I, I loved atlases. <laughs> um, but, but, but but only uh, only the ones that showed the capital cities. When you got to the topo- topography and all those other things, it started to get a bit boring. You were zoned out. <laughs> yes, but you said before that you enjoy quadratic, quadratic equations. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Each to their own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Certainly, certainly. But let's talk about Jimuji because, you know, one of the things that uh, Pete and I, you know, often come up um uh, against, for want of a better expression, perhaps not against is the right right expression, but a subject that comes up off, you know, on and off on this podcast is uh, uh, remote communities, um, and it's one of those things where we just, um, you know, we, we just we're, we're at sea about it to tell you the truth. You know, uh, there's a part of us, I think, and Pete, I'll, I'll let Pete, Pete speak for himself, but for me there's a part that understands and sympathises with the fact that, you know, uh, Indigenous Australians should, should um, you know, have that, you know who, who have that connection to the land should be allowed to be where, where that is. But then um, you just see the complete dysfunction uh, in, in relation to, some, if not most, of the communities, mm-hmm. um, and you, you, you know, you just question like, what the heck is going on? Is this is this sustainable? In fact, I, I won't say who I had lunch with today, but I had lunch with a guy um, who ran for a for a seat in parliament and, and just missed out. And um, we got onto the subject of remote communities, and I and I just said to him, I said, I said, are they sustainable? And he looked at me and his eyes were like, he was like deer in headlights. And he said, you can't say that, Leon. <laughs> you know, it's like we're, you know, we're prevented from having a, a conversation that, you know, just is, is nothing more than asking questions. 
Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to steal your thunder. Do you have a, anything to add or take away from that? <laughs> oh, no, well, I was listening to it intently, and you're right. We have sort of discussed this topic quite a bit. <clears throat> Something that really, it's slightly off topic, but you'll, you'll get where I'm going with this. I saw this conversation um, that, that's taken place since Meghan Markle had her thing the other day and, you know, Piers Morgan's been quite outspoken with what he said and there was some spat on some American TV show. And what really caught my attention was the fact that Piers Morgan is being labelled as a racist because he doesn't believe what the girl's saying. The fact that she happens to be African-American is irrelevant to him in the conversation. And I can't stand the bloke, but it's similar to what you just described. It's like you can't have the conversation because you're automatically labelled something that you're not, but you're just either interested or want to know or want to understand better. And just, just delving into it doesn't make you against the people or the person that you're talking about. So, yeah, I just I read that and I just thought it's – it's getting to the point now where you can't ask anybody anything about any topic because they might fit into some sort of minority group. And you're not having a go at the minority group. You're just interested to know about the topic or, you know, as you said, just trying to get more information about it. Yeah, I think I would tend to agree with you. It's um, And, I mean, these issues aren't going to be solved unless people do ask questions and do find out more so i mean it's important it is important the conversations are had and questions are asked but yeah i so don't being, know. being a geography being a geography teacher mm-hmm. and living in Dumaji, mm-hmm. can you in, enlighten us in any way about remote communities um being a teacher in remote communities was hard um Dumaji and Boralua, um, mainly because you would have these kids for, um, you know, from, say, 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock, um, you would do your best to try and teach um, what you could, knowing that they were then going to go home and everything that you had just taught them was very possibly just going to go out the window. Um, even getting them into a classroom is difficult, Um trying to cater for their needs because being in a classroom is not um, is not what they're used to and it's not their environment. So making them sit in a chair at a desk in front of a blackboard um, and listening to you talk for an hour or, you know, writing, it, it, that's not their natural environment and it's not what they're used to and it's not the way that they learn the best. Um, so, you know, it's, it is important that, um, you know, teachers that go into these communities are educated enough to to understand those issues and to be able to come up with ways to to actually get around that and find ways to educate these kids um, without, you know, necessarily traditional traditional ways of teaching. Um, I found that um, in both Dumaji and Boralula, one of the greatest assets that so we had in our school were assistant teachers, which were some of the local women. Um, you know, they were absolutely invaluable having in the classrooms and being able to um, not only educate the kids but to educate us um, as to, you know, what the kids needed and were always there to help with anything. So, you know, that's that's something that 
potentially needs to to be built on and you know those those assistant teachers can I mean they maybe recognize more of the I'm going to say girls because traditionally most of the assistant teachers are female um you know in in supporting them and you know maybe creating more job opportunities for them and you know educating them a little bit better um but yeah it's it is difficult um it's not I, I mean I certainly don't have any solutions um but there, yeah there are conversations that need to be had I mean have a look at the um current affair last night in Alice Springs I mean that's it's not even a remote community um and it's facing well it's prob- their issues are probably worse in the remote communities um the other thing too, I guess, is that um, with Cairns Industries, there's a lot of money that's being pumped into, you know, building new houses and um, and all that sort of stuff in some of these communities. And I'm not sure that's necessarily addressing the issues that need to be addressed either. And there's an awful lot of money going into that. Um, I, they they definitely need new housing, but um, you know, I think that there is a better way um, to utilise the money the way that it's being utilised currently is housing you know at the risk of being labeled here but is housing um and the type of housing that we're constructing there you know a a, a metaphor if you like for what you're talking about in relation to schooling that it's not fit for purpose um very very possibly um there was the first um, the first round of housing, the SIHIP um, program, the first round of housing that come out in the communities. I honestly believe there was not enough consultation with the communities at all and they just bought in housing that was, yeah, was not appropriate, was not um, not relevant and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that was particularly successful. When they released the um, the the um when i say they the nt government released the uh, most recent 1.1 billion dollar remote housing project um we were assured that as contractors we were assured that um there was going to be plenty of consultation with the community and that they were going to be given whatever houses they want they were going to help design them so that they were be would be fit for purpose and um the first lot of housing that they put in in Boralula were transportable buildings um which to me, is not um, mm. not what the, what the community wanted at all. Um, they have, I mean, the rest of the houses that have have been rolled out are how much better. But I do wonder how much consultation is actually happening, um, and I don't think it's enough. Kim, you said before that there's there is a better way, and I'm not putting this on your shoulders to you know give us the complete answer. But have you got some examples of what that would look like? I just think that there's a lot of money that's being wasted on things that it does not need to be spent on. Um, so, for example, there's um, this is just an, an example, but there are three town camps in Boralula and those three town camps um, were given a couple of houses, um, there was money for a couple of different houses each. The way they rolled out the contracts for each of those separate packages and the money that went into rolling out each of those packages could have been far better streamlined. Um, so 
there was there was three separate companies that got the three different contracts, which is fair enough um, because you know obviously Cairns Industries got one, so we appreciate that they you know spread it around and we got some, but. I think it could have been streamlined a whole lot better in the way that materials were brought into town. You know, if the three three companies had have worked together, um, we could have cut costs mm. in numerous numerous ways. Um, it, I, I just think that yeah, that there is a lot of money that um, that is being wasted that could be used for other programs um, and for supporting the youth. For example, finding finding programs that will, will help 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 the youth out there instead of wasted on logistics and um, building houses. Mm-hmm. And we've we've been led to believe in the past that um, while they have these wonderful uh, you know sort of grandstand budgets like one point one billion dollars etc. That, that they don't end up spending a lot of that money. It's it's all sort of funneled into other areas. Um, I'm not sure in terms of this um, this project that they've got. I mean, it's still ongoing. So as far yep. as I know, they've still got plenty to plenty to roll out. There's still more coming out in Boralula, as far as I know. Mm. Um, the I know with the the Sihip housing project, um, there there was a lot of issues in Boralula in terms of signing off on tenancy agreements. Um, but the money that was allocated to Boralula was um, was taken away. And Boralula got no houses out of that project at all. Mm. Um, there was money at one stage for um, the clinic out there to be upgraded because it's in desperate need of, of upgrade. Um, again, somewhere along the line, that money got taken away. Um, never really received much explanation. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. It just sounds. It just sounds like third world. You know. it, it it does it can feel like that in communities sometimes very much so um you have kids that come to school that haven't you know that haven't had a decent night's sleep and haven't had um breakfast and have been up all night walking the streets um you know the the, the break-ins etc in Boralula are, are a real issue um especially um during school holiday time when the kids have got nothing to do mm. and there's there really are. There really is like not a lot of programs out there. Not much, much for them to do. So they go and break in for some entertainment. I'm just going to ask these questions because I just want to. Know, uh, you know, I just want to know what the heck is going on. Like, I mean, did the parents not care, or is there, what's the disconnect here? There, there is a lot of issues around um, around the parents, and the and ultimately, yes, the parents are the ones that need to be responsible. Some of these kids are are roaming the streets and walking the streets of till all hours of the morning, if not all night. And um, and there are a lot of parents that are yeah that, that are drunk or you know just probably don't care where their kids are. This is completely consistent with what we've been told in the last couple of years um, throughout the Northern Territory, that that, that there is a generation of parents who either don't care, can't care, won't care, whatever it is, substance abuse, and and, and we've got children walking the streets doing God knows what. Um, In in some cases, Kim, you know, we've been told that that the police prefer them walking the streets because they're safer doing that than they are at home. Um, and and yet the you know the the sort of 
people not involved in, in, in that whole thing are at home fearing they're going to be broken into or robbed or bashed or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, but in saying that too, I mean, I guess in every community, and it's probably the same in Darwin, you know, in every community there's always, you know, your group of or, or you know, your few families that are trying to do everything and they're trying, mm. trying to help. And um, But unfortunately, you know, they're also the ones that are brought down as well by, you know, by others, yeah. those that aren't doing the right thing will always bring down those that are trying to trying to make an effort and trying to do the, do the right thing, um, which makes it really difficult on them. I said, I mean, I certainly saw a lot of families in Boralula that, um, you know, that really struggled and there'd be days where they just copped abuse from other members of community because they were going to work every day and they were trying to make an effort Um and basically just got labelled, oh, you just want to be a white person. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, which, you know, which, which makes it really hard on them. Um, of course. Because they do try really, really hard. Mm. Could you tell me um, what, what the accommodation is like for uh, people like yourself, you know, that would go in there to do, uh, whether it's teaching jobs, or I'm sure there'd be uh, medical people in, in the different communities as well. I know um, in some of the communities that essentially where where people like yourself would have lived, um, it's a little bit like being in a jail at night because, you know, full shutters and the whole bit to protect yourselves. Um, I never, ever experienced that and I never, ever felt that um, in either Dumaji or, or Boralula. Um I mean, you certainly make sure your doors are locked and, and all that sort of thing, but mm. um, there was never, you know, I used to, oh, before I went to Dormandy, I used to hear stories like that too, you know, mm. oh, there'll be be um, bars on your windows and, and that sort yep. of thing. Um, I never, um, n- never really experienced that. I mean, the, the accommodation, I can't, I can't complain about the accommodation. Um, I mean, they're, you know, they're older houses, but, you know, that's, it's still a house. Um, yep. as, a, as a teacher in a remote area, they're subsidised too, so you can't really complain. Mm. You're not, you're mm. not paying, paying for them. So, um, but, yeah, I, but you don't go out and do stupid things either. So, you know, yep. you don't go and walk, walk around the streets at midnight and, and things like that, you know, but would you do that in town um, mm. either? So, it. Yeah, I, I never experienced any anything like that. Um, it's just you just common sense, keep yourself safe. But you know, the accommodation certainly wasn't like a fortress or like a jail. No. Did you enjoy some sort of status being a teacher? Like, was it known that you know that was Teacher Kim's house and and you know leave it alone type thing? Um, not necessarily. Um, if it was a teacher's house, then it was um, fair game on school holidays. <laughs> right. the, the teachers weren't there. <laughs> um, and in um, Dumaji, for example, Dumaji was a, a not a dry town, but it was beer only, so you weren't allowed wine or spirits. Okay. Um, of course, not a lot of teachers ever um, necessarily abided by that. And yeah. so, you know, obviously if the, the kids would realise that. And right go and see what they could find during school holidays. Yeah. Um, but in, in terms of during term when we were there, there was never never really an issue, no. Mm. no. Do you think dr- dry towns work? Um, no, I don't because even even in Dumaji when it was beer only, um, it's, it's an hour drive 
to Birktown. There's a pub in Birktown. It was an hour drive to Hellsgate Roadhouse and they sell alcohol at Hellsgate Roadhouse. Um, some of the things I saw during wet season, they would charter planes um, because they couldn't. you couldn't even get to Birktown or Hellsgate during wet season. It would be completely mm. cut, cut off. Um, so you couldn't even get beer. They would charter planes in with cartons of beer. So those cartons of beer would come off the plane at $100 a carton and then they would go down and sell them down in the community. Um, so, wow. no, I, I don't think dry tans are the answer at all. Um, I mean, I'm, I guess, you know, it's living in Borroloola that actually when I first moved to Borroloola had, had a fully functional pub. Um, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily created any more issues by having the pub there. They're, I mean, if people want to drink, they're going to get it. Um, and in Borrelula, for example, you've got um, Heartbreak Hotel an hour down the road. It, it's encouraging people to drink drive. Um, it's encouraging people to to go into into town um, to get alcohol. It, it's not going to stop them. Um, that those that those that really want it, it's not going to stop mm. them. And it just it just causes a whole heap of other issues. Um, you know how there haven't been more um, accidents or fatalities on that road between Borrelula and, and Heartbreak with people being drunk. I do not know. So it's, um, it's a concern. So besides welfare, I mean, what opportunities are there? Not that welfare is an opportunity, but anyway. Um, they come work for Cairns Industries. Um, they well. Um, can't, I, well, we, we always tried to um, employ as many locals as we could. Mm. Um, you know, it was something we actively, actively tried to do. Um, unfortunately, most of um, having a construction company and com com um, competing with a mine, I mean, it's only 45 minutes down the road that pays a hell of a lot more than we ever could, it was very difficult. So, you know, any of the guys we got that, you know, had a really good work ethic and wanted to work got poached by, by MacArthur River Mike. Mm -hmm. They paid more. Um, and, and any of the other, you know, sort of exploration companies that come into town. Um, there's probably not a lot, no. Um, there's certainly, you know, there's the school, there's the stores, um, and then there's Mabungi, which is the um, Aboriginal organisation um, in Borroloola or, you know, Doomagy Council in Doomagy. Mm. Um, but, no, there's definitely not um, as many opportunities as in town, no. No, there's not. So, you know, this is really a, a, an algebra equation, Kim, frankly, isn't it? Uh, there's no opportunities. Uh, there's family life is dysfunctional for the most part. Um, school uh, schooling is almost optional uh, and doesn't seem to have any application, uh, at least in a Western sense. Yeah. Traditional values are are there any are there any traditional are they living a traditional way of life? What the heck's going on there? The, you know, the older generation do try and they really do try. They, I know that um, they do run programs in the schools, you know, culture programs in the schools to try and, and you know, I mean, and but it, I, my question is, is it is it the school's responsibility to be teaching culture? I mean, that's something that they should 
be learning at home. Um, it's like, you know, the same as, you know, what I would teach my my kids the traditions and um, family values that I have for my kids. I teach them at home. I don't expect the school to te- teach that, but it's at the point where it's something that has to be brought into the school so that the kids are actually getting some sort of exposure to it and, and getting some sort of um, sort of cultural teaching. Um and it, it is it is that older that older generation that's really driving that and really trying to keep that. Um, and I am concerned that you know in a couple of generations' time, when the, that older generation isn't around anymore, is there going to be much of that culture left? There there are you know a few younger generation that um, that do see it as important and are trying to drive it, but not um, not like it has been in the past. Hey. <laughs> hey, pardon my ignorance on this one, Kim, but um, in in these two areas that you've mentioned so far, um, are these all like one clan towns or are they? No. Yeah, okay. So yeah. they're because, I mean, there's different cultures within those as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And a lot of the issues around violence and um, and that sort of thing is between the different um, the different yeah. family groups. Mm. Um, Boralula, for example, is made up of three. Um, I think Duma, I think Dumaji was the same, was made up of about three, three, three different family groups that were all brought together. Um, yeah. In the missionary days, they were for, forced together. Um, so... That definitely causes a lot of issues, yeah. Mm. Well, Kim, you're not inspiring me at all. Uh, (laughs) I I just feel completely and utterly despondent by all of this. Uh, And, you know, as a Territorian and as as an Australian, you're like, what? I think what it's definitely it's it's definitely a really big issue that needs needs looking at and um, you know like I said I I mean I certainly don't have any answers and I don't know what um, where to even start but I I do think there are some really good things that are happening and I know that um, you know I know a few people even just here in Darwin that you know are, are trying to make a difference and are trying to make make things happen. But it's going to take a long time, I think. We're, we're, we're talking about years and years of, of this. It's it's not an overnight fix and it's not going to happen. Um, but we can only hope that it's going to go in the right direction and not continue going in the wrong direction too. I know, but, you know, Michael Gunner talks about generational change, right? You're a school teacher on the ground in remote communities and you're telling me they're not learning anything. <laughs> uh, the, you can't see anything actually improving. Um, it's just set up for failure. I mean, if you ask me um, as a complete outsider with no knowledge of any of these programs or anything like that, what, you know, what, what an outcome would look like, you know, education would be at the front of that. You know, without a good education, your opportunities are limited. But when Absolutely. we talk to people like Kendall Trudgeon and Scott McConnell, you know, I get the impression that, well, what is a Western education good for anyway out there? Well, probably nothing. You, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, no, that's right. Like if they, you know, if they get it, I mean, and they're, 
those that um, that really want a good education or those that, you know, from the families that value it um, tend to go away to school. So there's a, a number of kids from Borrelula that are at Haleberry. Um and, you know, you, you would like to think that they'll get that really good education, go back into their community and make, make a difference. Um, well, we spoke so- to the principal of Halebury. He was on this yeah. podcast. Yeah. And he said to us, there's only one condition he has to admit people from, from other communities into the school, and that is that they have a sponsor. They have someone who is going to make sure that they stay at school. That's the only condition. Yeah. Does that resonate with you at all? Um, so by sponsor, who does he mean by sponsor? By, so, by, there's, there's some family member oh. that says you are not coming back here, you are staying at school and you are getting your education. And of the I don't know how many boarders he had last year, he said there were two that he could see that were going to make it. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the the families that I know in Boralula, um that that are successful, that you know, they they're actually that say have been to St Peter's and is to St uh, is it St Peter's in Alice Springs? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I I don't know, I I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Um, it's one of those things. I think, and um, like I said, bigger conversations need to be had. And and you're you're right, though education is the key, and it um, that needs to be the focus. And I don't I don't think it's being done correctly at the moment. No. Hey Kim, something you touched on before that interests me. Um, you you said uh, I'm paraphrasing. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you said something along the lines of for those families in in these uh, communities. Uh, who are successful, um, they quite often get told, oh, you're, you're trying to be white, as though that's obviously some sort of an insult. Can, can you give me some sort of bearings around that? Um, pretty much. Like it's, it's just saying that, you know, if you, um, if you go to work Monday to Friday and, you know, you actually, you know, earn a wage and, come home and have a have a house and have a nice house it's um it's yeah it's just a a white way of living it's not um and it's i guess it's that similar to um tall poppy syndrome where you know they just need to need to bring bring those people down because whether it's you know jealousy whether it's um you know what it is but it's just there just seems to be be the way it is and to your knowledge, is it um, a badge of honour or something to be proud about? Uh, rather than doing that, is is it um, considered better, if you like, um, by those that try and bring down the, the the ones that are trying to make a go of it? Is it better to accept the sit down money and and just keep rolling with that? Um, I don't know whether it's that or whether it is just is a jealousy thing. Whether they, you know, whether they. They wish that they actually had, you know, had okay. had the house and they had that because I mean, if you're, um, you know, some of the staff at the school, for example, they will get subsidised housing. Well, most people in Borrelia will get subsidised or free housing anyway. But um, it's, I think it's probably more of a jealousy thing than anything. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, now that we've solved that problem, shall we move on? <laughs> <laughs> but have we? <laughs> um, now, Cairns Industries uh, did some pretty good things and uh, once, you, you won a fairly prestigious award at one stage, didn't you, Kim? We won the um, uh, Telstra Business Award for medium-sized business and for regional business in 2013. Gosh, it seems like a lifetime ago. It does seem like a lifetime ago, yes. And, and how did you win that? What was the, um, you know, what, what, what were the reasons behind that? Um, I know you'd have to ask the judges that. Um, yeah. I think um, probably because at the time, you know, we were um, we were doing quite well. We were actually quite um, quite successful financially at the time. Um, MacArthur River Mine was doing their big expansion going from um, underground to open cut, so um, required the services of a hell of a lot of concrete, and that's something that, you know, we did pretty well <laughs> at the time. So, um, so we were doing pretty well financially. Um, I think we had a really, um, really great, culture like staff culture there so obviously being in a remote town um we had a sort of camp situation set up um so we had demountables where you know the staff staff would stay um there's a communal kitchen um but we employ cook to cook for everyone um a communal entertainment area um so it was sort of like more of a family sort of culture um than it was a work work culture. We all had to live together. Um, you know, I had two young kids at the time, so they were mm. they were part of it. I used to joke that some of the guys that worked for us were like uncles, <laughs> um, because they, you know, they my kids saw more of them than they actually saw of their grandparents or, or their their aunt. Um, so I think that definitely contributed to it as well. Um, yeah, it was just it was just a really good time for us. We were yeah. We're doing quite well and um, and tried really hard to um, be professional without that whole cowboy attitude of, oh, we're in a remote area, so it doesn't really matter what that house looks like. We'll just suck mm. it up. And, you know, it was, you know, Sean in particular was very, um, very particular about his, you know, his standard of work and, um, and the way he did things. So that was, yeah, that was really important. So, yeah. I think that's what contributed to it. And did, did that sort of wash into the community in the sense that did they sort of see that and think, okay, well, no. No, not really. <laughs> not really. <laughs> oh, man. No, okay. no, no. Um, I, don't, I don't really think the Telstra Business Awards have any, like, any, no one in Boralula really had any. They're not proud of it. What they were, <laughs> or, um, I would like to think that it sort of put Boralula on the map a little bit, um, but that would be in that you know there was a lot of people in Darwin that you know didn't know where Boralula was, but you know now they do. So, well, I was always told that Boralula is famous for mud crabs. Is that true? Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a few oh, recipes or a few stories about mud crabs? I don't have recipes for mud crab. I just like them natural, just, you know, just straight out of the pot, put them in the fridge and then just tear into them. That's that's the only way, <laughs> only way to eat. 
and and the um, okay. yeah, uh, well, it's great too when they've got the crabbers out there and they come in and they you know want a couple of bits of ply or a couple of planks or something and they'll pay you with my crabs, which is really nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I love mud crabs, but um, yeah, yeah I, I don't mind the natural sort of uh, variety, but um, you know, Singapore. Chili crabs. Chili crabs. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, okay. So, after all of that, um, after winning the award, did that change the business at all? Change the way you did things? It didn't really change the way we did things. I think, um, particularly because we were in Borolua and um, we sort of we went back to Borolua and life went back to normal. Um, I think. A lot of the businesses that won that were in Darwin obviously got a lot more exposure because they were there. There was probably a bit more media and there was probably one particular company um, that won the overall that year that liked to hog the limelight a little bit. Um, they got plenty of media exposure. Um, but because we were out in Boralula, we were sort of a little bit forgotten, I think. Um, the big advantage of it for me was in the people that we got to meet and connected with through the process and um, the, like, the, not only the business connections but the friendships that were made um, out of that, I think, um, was definitely the, definitely the big win for us over anything. Was it a difficult process, Kim, to you know, submit your application and your supporting evidence? It was quite time-consuming um, completing the application. Yeah. Mm. Um, once once that was done, the other I guess the other advantage of it is they actually do um, the I can't remember the name of it now the um, the health check. That's right. So um, so once you submit your application and give them all the information, they give you a report back that's like a health check that tells you you know how you're going, where you could sort of improve in certain areas. So mm. that was really handy as well. Um, but yeah, it was it it was quite time consuming to to actually complete it. But um, once you know, once you knocked that out of the way, it was you know the judging process. The judging process for for us was fantastic because normally it's you know you're with the judge for an hour or, or two hours and that's all you get allocated. Because we're in Borolula and we only have one flight in and one flight out. <laughs> um, our judge was stuck with us all Captive day. Captive audience. So, yep. So to show him around, give him the tour. It was great. Oh, that's cold. And so uh, after that, you um, you had a bit of a, a, a serious mishap, didn't you, uh, when you went on holidays? I didn't, but, no. um, yeah. Sean um, did. Sean did. So um, in 2015 we went um, on a holiday to um, started in Paris and then down tracked our way down to Rome and it just happened um, to be NRL grand final season. Um, when we left to go on the holiday, I'm a big um, Cowboys fan and he's a big Broncos fan. When we left to go on holidays, the thought of the two of them making the grand final was mm. not even, that's not mm. conceivable. Um, every town we got to and every game we watched, it got closer and closer <laughs> to the point where we were in Florence and found out that um, they were actually going to be in the grand final. Yeah. And the train that we had booked to Rome um, was actually going to arrive halfway in Rome halfway through the game. So I did everything that I could to, to change that and um, got an earlier train, got to Rome, um, got to the hotel, threw our bags at the um, at 
at the front desk and said, we're going to watch a footy game. Um, we'll be back. So we went, I found a little pub, a little dark, dungy pub in Rome that um, was actually showing show, showing the NRL grand final. And we walked in and um, at the bar for every um, great, uh, for every um, Corona you purchased, you got two free tequila shots. Um, <laughs> Um, by the end of the night, um, Sean was drinking everybody else's tequila shots as well. Oh, no. um, so, and then of course, on top of the Broncos, yeah, losing, um, yeah. he was quite devastated. Um, obviously, I was um, ecstatic. Um, anyway, we got back to the hotel. He was quite drunk. Got back to the hotel, um, and then yeah, the next thing I know, I had hotel staff and um, police waking me up. I had fallen asleep, um, asking me where he was. And um, he had fallen three stories off the veranda of the hotel uh, from the fifth floor onto the second floor. Um, So by that stage, he, they had already, he was already at the hospital in Rome. Um, They took me then to, to the hospital um, he was in surgery by the time we got there and um, the doctor pulled me aside and told me he wasn't going to make it through the night. Um, if, he, if he made it through surgery, he would, probably would not make it through the night. Um, the thing I learned about um, hospitals in Rome, I was being very naive thinking that nurses and, and doctors being educated would speak English over there. Um, that's <laughs> not the case. <laughs> um, there was a few doctors that did speak speak English, some better than others. Um, Very few of the nursing staff speak English at all. Um, He did make it through the night. Um, He's um, he's definitely made it through. um, We spent eight weeks. He was in ICU for eight weeks um, over in Rome, multiple operations. He shattered his pelvis, um, broke the last two vertebrae in his his back, punctured lung, um, broken ribs, um, and a head injury, and that's just that I, I know of. Like I said, it mm-hmm. was very difficult for me to get any information. Um, in ICU over there, you're not allowed to, you're, they're only allowed in at certain times, so I would have to go at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, sit in a waiting room with the other families, and you would wait until the doctor would call you in, and I sort of had to work out, you know, where my turn was and where I fit in because no one else spoke any English. Would go in and see the doctor, you know, they'd give you a bit of an overview as to what happened in the last 24 hours, go back into the waiting room and wait until they actually let you into ICU. And then I could spend up until 10 o'clock there and then they would kick me out. So that's the only amount of time I actually got to spend um, and really couldn't talk to anybody because, um, like I said, none of the nurses spoke any English. So couldn't couldn't give me any information or tell me what was going on. Occasionally the doctors would come around. So it was very difficult trying to get any information and it was very difficult to actually ascertain what was wrong with him. Um, he was in an induced coma for, um, for the first few weeks and then they slowly started um, taking the sedation off. We finally um, got to the point where I had to get him um, medivaced back here to um, to Australia on an air ambulance. Um, it was actually his birthday, the day that we um, we flew back, and he's always said he wanted a private private jet plane. So <laughs> he doesn't remember yeah. it at all, but I can now say that I got him a private jet for, yeah, for his yeah. birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, so we flew flew back to um, to Darwin. 
Um, unfortunately, he also brought back a bug with him from Italy that we didn't have here in Australia, so that complicated things somewhat. And um, the doctors Gee. here in Darwin didn't want to touch him. He had the metal work in his pelvis. They didn't want to take the metal work out um, because his pelvis wasn't healed, but they couldn't get rid of this bug until the metal work was out. Oh. There was only one antibiotic in the world that would actually kill this bug. So um, four weeks in Darwin Hospital and then we eventually, um, thanks to CareFlight, flew him down to Brisbane um, where he spent... Um, I think about three three months in hospital down in Brisbane with flat rehab, etc. Um, so he's um, he's pretty much a walking miracle. Um, he has nerve da- damage down the side of his right leg. Um, he didn't move that right leg for probably until almost till we got to Darwin. And the, some of the doctors in Rome were telling me he was never going to be able to walk he'd never have use of that leg so um the fact that he does what he does now is is absolutely incredible Mm. um and just the motivation and determination that he had um if the physio didn't turn up he would be screaming the hospital down (laughs) because he knew that the only way he was getting out of there was for the physio to come and for him to Mm. get up and start walking again um so the whole process of him having to learn to walk again and um yeah it's it it was it was a very difficult time um but you know i look at the positives that come out of it um things like you know it's it's taught my kids resilience and it's taught my kids that um shit happens that you know you can't go you can't go through life um smelling the roses all the time you know bad things happen and you have to deal with them and the determination that they saw from their father um, is definitely something that's going to put them in good stead for the rest of their life. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those things. It, it happens. It's life. It happens. You deal with it and get through it and, um, and yeah, so wow. managed. So, so, so let's just unpick some of that. Like <laughs> how, long, how long were you in Rome after this happened? Uh, eight weeks, yeah. And so, you had the kids with you? No, no, the kids, um, so it was just Sean and I on this holiday. The kids were with my parents in Brisbane um, the whole time. So. How much did you hate pizza and pasta by the end of it? Oh, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I, um, I found that the hotel that we were staying in at the time um, was quite nice and quite expensive, so I couldn't afford to stay there. So, um, And it was a fair way from the hospital. So I, my parents actually flew over straight away. As soon as I made that phone call that night, they were on the next plane um, and flew, flew straight over to, to be with me, to, to help me. Um, so really were a great support in that. And they stayed for a week um, and were a great support. So they helped me find a, a much cheaper little hotel a lot mm. closer to the hospital. Um, so at 10 o'clock at night leaving the hospital, there was this little pizza bar that would be open. <laughs> so he couldn't speak any English at all, but I used to just get a couple of slices of pizza on my way back to the hotel yeah, room yeah. and that was me. So, yeah. so Gosh, I mean, that is just such an incredible story. I mean... So you said you couldn't go into the ICU till four o'clock in the afternoon, right? Yeah, yeah. So what did you do all day? Um, uh, well, you know, by the time I get home at ten o'clock, and then you know you can't watch television because it's all in mm. Italian. Um, 
I just probably made lots of phone calls and tried to, you know, mm. obviously, you know, there was the business was still there. I'm very thankful to have Sean's father um, at the time. He was actually in Borrelula looking after the business for us while we were on holidays. Obviously, that extended. So I <laughs> um, was very grateful to have, have him um, there to do that. I had an admin assistant at the time who, you know, I sort of had to talk her through a few things at the start and let her, her carry on. So, um, dealing with the bank in terms of getting a yeah. loan to get a Medibank um, plane halfway across the world, that, that took oh, wow. some negotiation as well. Yeah. So, I, so I'm taking it the, uh, the health insurance didn't, the travel insurance didn't go that far? When when you're drunk, no, that doesn't quite cover it, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, right. So there's an exclusion clause for drunk being drunk, is it? They sent a private investigator over and everything. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So he uh, and he his blood alcohol level when they admitted him into hospital was quite high. So they obviously got that report and it was just a straight out no. So In, any idea um, as to how it happened and does he have any memory of it at all? No, he has no memory of it at all. Um he was just out on the veranda. Um, I don't know, potentially doing something stupid, not really sure. <laughs> Um, yeah. I said, I sort of, you know, I sort of lied down, went to sleep and he went out on the veranda to have a smoke and next uh, thing, you know, so no, he has absolutely no recollection of it at all, which is probably a good thing. And Leon, I just got to say, um, so Kim, uh, I'm a very big Melbourne Storm supporter <laughs> and, um, have followed them since, you know, their, their entry into the NRL. And, uh, for someone who doesn't follow any form of football, which is Leon, um, what you don't understand is, and I'm at pains to make this admission, um, but it, it Aside from something that may have happened 50, 60 years ago, which I can't comment on, it, it is the greatest modern-day grand final that's ever existed. Like this game was, to say it was a nail-biter, it went into extra time, it was won by a, a drop goal in the end. So this is, Kim would have been on an absolute high and he would have been as low as low can be. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite hilarious though because um, Sean actually grew up in Townsville and I grew up in Brisbane. <laughs> supports the Broncos, no support the Cowboys. Funny. So, so okay, so all these hospital bills and everything you had to pay yourself. No, no hospital bills. So um, very grateful that it happened in Italy because we have mutual. Um, so oh, med- Medicare system, we have mutual right. recognition with Italy. It was just the flight. Over. So what, what what are we talking about here for a private jet from Europe to to Darwin? It's a, a medivac, so it had a full sort of like they had all the medical oh, yes. equipment on it. Oh, um, yeah. One doctor, one nurse. Um, yeah. They had one other sort of wait staff, I guess you know, to make yeah. sure that I was looked after, um, and two pilots. Um, two stops, one in Lahore and one in Chiang Mai. Um, Four hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Whoa! That's, that's half of what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> what sort of plane is this? Um, like nine hundred or something. Is it? it was a. Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was quite decent. Decent right. plane. Okay. Yeah. It was a comfortable flight. 
Well, that's good. So you, you lived like the rich and famous there for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they could have stopped in some more salubrious cities for you along the way. Well, Lahore, we we geez. we stopped in Lahore, um, and it was dark. And <laughs> they they put the um, they put the steps down, and I sort of they I got up, and they said, "Oh, you can't get off the plane. You have to have to stay on the plane." I said, "Oh, okay," because I thought you know they couldn't refuel while people were on the plane. Obviously, Sean had to stay yeah. on the plane because he yeah. was. Day sedated on the bed. Um, anyway, I walked up to the top of the stairs, and down the bottom of the stairs was an armed guard with a rifle standing at the bottom of the stairs. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I said, "I'll just stay here, thanks." Yeah. I'm oh, told. Wow. I'm told it's the best view of Lahore at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Lahore is so interesting. Lahore and Chiang Mai. So they obviously avoided the major airports there. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I didn't question the flight path. I just wanted them to get get it. Get Double O seven was flying it. the plane. Yeah, my my kids were waiting at Darwin Airport. That's what I cared about. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Right. And so, where did this plane come from? Like- um, it. I'm just trying. It was from Europe. So I actually spent um, quite some time getting quotes from a number of different companies wow. and um, and making quite a few inquiries because. Obviously, I didn't. Um, I had to look at the price, but if I was going to fly halfway across the world on a, on a uh, jet, I wanted to make sure it was a reputable company as well. So, did a fair bit of research around that, and um, was pretty happy with these guys. So, I have it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. It was either London or Germany. I can't remember at the time, but because right. I looked at quite a few. And so, they, they, how, did they have a holiday while they were in Darwin? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they flew straight back. Straight out. One of the, uh, the, actually, the the hostess, the staff, she was actually Australian. Um, So, yeah. But the um, the doctor and the nurse weren't. So. And and did they, is this, uh, obviously, this is a thing that they fly around all over the world, evacuating people? Yep. 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 There's, there's, drunk, there's drunk people falling off balconies all around the world. Yeah. Well, you hear about it happening in Bali quite often. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You do. Whew. So that is an expensive air ticket, Pete. I've got to sure. tell you. I know. That makes your first class ticket seem like just a drop in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that is, you know, that's an interesting story. So, well, it, it's great that, you know, Sean managed to, to make such a, a recovery and they, they obviously got that super bug out of you somehow. They did. They um, That was quite miraculous as well because they honestly thought it was going to take some time. I had his infectious disease doctor here in Darwin telling me that if we didn't get him to Dar- didn't get him to Brisbane and get um, get him on or get the middle workout and get um, him on the antibiotic, it was going to kill him. Like he was he was dead oh, wow. serious. I, I obviously with an infection you can't see it. I mean, yeah. I saw his his other injuries and um, and all of that sort of thing at the start, which concerned me. But then you know this is something you can't see, so it didn't mm. actually occur to me that this could kill him. And yeah. it wasn't until you know sort of halfway through the time here in Darwin and his infectious disease doctor was saying if you don't do something about it, it's going to kill him, he will die. Um, And then, of course, the concern was with the antibiotic that if that antibiotic didn't work, there wasn't another one, there was no backup. So, um, but by the time he got to Brisbane um, and, you know, the doctors even said, you know, his bones had healed a whole lot faster than they ever expected and they were able to take the metal workout um, a lot lot quicker than they thought. So got him on the antibiotic and, and he was good to go. So. 
Sí. My concern was making sure that he got through it and doing whatever I could to make sure that he got um, he a got home to Australia and and then he got through it um, with you know as minimal impact as as, as possible. I mean, obviously, he still has a lot of um, pain issues and and ongoing issues from it that he will for the rest of his life. But you know, he's doing pretty well considering. Um, my other consideration was getting home to my kids and um, yeah. and what they were going to have to go through because, you know, it, it was quite a shock for them to see him. He was still um, st- still coming out of sedation when um, they first come to visit him up in hospital here in Darwin. So it was, you know, it was pretty hard and traumatic for them as well. Yeah. Um, How old so, were they at the time? Um, so what was it, five years ago? Um, no, it was almost six, six years ago. So Brennan's 14, Taya's 13, so, um, like nine, right. eight, eight and nine. Mm. Yeah. 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 But, um, but like I said, you know, that it's, it is, it's taught them resilience. It's, um, you know, it's, it's taught them a lot of things, but, um, I think it's, yeah, definitely seeing, the way, the way he pulled through it and his determination and that he never gave up um, and he did everything that he could, you know, when the days that they would come up to see him in hospital, he'd be playing, um, you know, with them or he'd be playing Scrabble with them or something like that, which, you know, was really good for his brain injury to get his mind back and, and thinking again. But, um, you know, they they saw, saw that and they saw, you know, that that's going to be with them for the rest of their life in in a good way, mm. in a good way. Right. So, yeah. Well, and then obviously things sort of uh, changed, and uh, you guys separated. Yes, we did. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I don't think it was the toll of that. I think it was just, um, you know, it's it's just one of those things. Yeah. You know? um, we're we're still very good friends, um, and always will be. Um, I stayed working for Cairns Industries. I mean, we separated two years ago. I stayed working for Cairns Industries until the end of last year um, with him. Um, good days and bad days, but we got through it. Um, it's just, you know, life life moves on. So, and, and then you um, decided to take a career change. I did complete career change. <laughs> this is all, this is all to pay back all the you know the karma of um, you know what happened before. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like I said, Careflight flew him down to Brisbane, so you know I had to. I then went and volunteered for Careflight um, after that because you know felt the need to give back and have done various things for Royal Darwin Hospital um, 
in the past as well just because of, um, you know, it's I know that a lot of these people are in paid positions but, you know, I, I can't complain about the treatment that he got at Royal Darwin Hospital. I really can't. Everyone was amazing and really supportive. And, um, you know, you just when you're in situations like that, if you have the opportunity to give back, then I think it's really important that you do. Yeah. My, my uh, mother-in-law took a care flight, flight to Adelaide because of some heart issues. Well, I think we've got about 450 bears in the house now. <laughs> <laughs> you bought the whole collection? <laughs> well, you talked to Cindy about that, right? <laughs> I'm forever finding bears in, you know, when I'm washing clothes, and, you know, looking at the hamper and the kids' bedrooms. <laughs> That's a good thing. Hmm. So, uh, and, and so you're happy doing what you're doing now? You look happy. I am happy. Thank you. Um, I am happy doing what I'm doing. It's um, it's definitely a challenge. So I think I'm about eight weeks into to the role now, and yeah. it's you know there's a lot of things obviously that I need to learn. I mean, while I have spent a lot of my life volunteering and um, you know I can do a lot of the stuff. I mean, there's a lot of negotiating with government and um, and dealing with different people that you know those are the skills that I got from. Cairns Industries and teaching that I can take, but you know, learning all the the ins and outs of the organisation and, and that sort of stuff, I'm still I'm still getting there. But, but um, I've found that most people in the not for profit sector are amazing. You know, they they have big hearts and they they're really generous and they're really they're there to support and help. So mm. um, that's probably the the biggest thing. It's a little bit different to the construction industry, let's say. Kim, I'm familiar with the concept of volunteering, but I'm interested yes. to know what does your uh, sort of bunch of volunteers look like at Volunteers NT? Like who are they? What sort of people? What sort of work do they do for you? Um, so anyone can be a volunteer. So volunteers look like um, any age, male, female, um, it, it depends. Generally, people volunteer for various reasons. Um, like, for example, I volunteered for CareFlight because I wanted to give back for what they did for Sean. Mm. Um, or it may be things, you know, like my parents have been in scouting their whole lives. Um, it's what they know. Um, some people have an interest, so people volunteer for RSPCA because they love being around animals. Um, a lot of people volunteer because it makes them feel good. Um, because it's a great way to get out and meet people. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of pe people volunteer for a lot of different reasons. But, um, you know, I think there's a study out there that says somewhere um, in the vicinity of about 94% of people actually say that volunteering makes them feel better and makes them, mm. makes them happier. Um, so it's, you know, it's um, it, not only is it good for the community, but it's also good for your soul. Yeah, right. Uh, is there a big need for volunteers in the NT? There is definitely <laughs> That's a, a Dorothy Dixon. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was there's the right a, question to ask, Leon. There's a big need for volunteers <laughs> everywhere. Um, most definitely. We've got some amazing organisations up here in the Territory um, and that cover everything. So, you know, you've got, you've got your care flights and you've got your St John's and your Red Cross, but you've also got things like, you know, the Nightcliff Seabreeze Festival and um, the Darwin Festival or... Um, uh, 
um, you know, there's a couple of different multicultural organisations as well. So um, there's it, it doesn't matter what you're into or what you want to do, there's definitely an opportunity to volunteer um, doing something that you enjoy doing. Mm. Big sporting events? Um, yes. <laughs> um, there used to be one called the Arafura Games, which I believe yes. is on the cards for next year. So we'll definitely be mm-hmm. looking for volunteers for that, yes. Wow. And I imagine um, like the coordination of all the volunteers would be uh, interesting at times. Yeah, so every organisation actually has, well, most organisations have like a, vol- a dedicated volunteer manager, though like the larger organisations. Um, the smaller organisations just have to sort of manage it with the staff that they have but and that and that's our role is to support those volunteer managers um Mm. so to help them with the because obviously you know if you there's issues around volunteering you've got to have a working with children's card and um you've got to have you know codes of conduct so there's there's a screening process and a process to recruit your volunteers to make sure you've got the right fit because there's no point in um, an organisation bringing on a volunteer that's not going to be a right fit because it's not going to do justice to them and it's not going to be do any justice for the volunteer as well. So, mm. you know, there's that. that's basically what we're here for is to make sure that these organisations have the tools that, you know, they're equipped to be able to do that sort of thing. Have you... Um have you run into my sister-in-law, Katie Chip? I have. <laughs> <laughs> I had a meeting with her the other week, actually. <laughs> she, uh, she's made a transition from banking into uh, Yes, we, had, work. we yeah. had that conversation, yeah. 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 Well, that's great, uh, Kim. I'm, I'm glad you've um, you found some. Not that you didn't like what you were doing before. You seem to have enjoyed no. every single one of your roles. It's well, you know, it's everything's been a challenge, and I've learnt so much from from every one of them. And I think that's you know that's important in life, and that's what it's all about. You know, learn from what you're doing and get the most out of it. I mean, I can definitely say that the opportunities and the things that I've learnt while I was at Cairns Industries have definitely put me in a position um, to to do this job now and to you know, potentially whatever I, I do in the future as well. So, so if people want to find you. Uh in relation yes. to the work that you're doing now, how do they do that? They can either, um, they can definitely like our Facebook page, Volunteering NT, um, and Instagram. Um, they can find me um, at, um, or my email address um, is kim, K-Y-M, dot cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S, at volunteeringsa-nt.org.au. It's a it's a long one. Um, <laughs> um, but um, or you know, LinkedIn, um, you know, um, but we are in the Charles Darwin Centre um, in the Morph and Smith Street. Um, so yeah, get I in contact. You're right next door to me then. Charles Darwin. Yes, yes, right I am right next door to you. What, what yes. floor is that? What floor are you? Sixteenth. Uh, Wow. Um, the, one of the Regis floors. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, right. with an internal office. I don't <laughs> have the view. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, yes. But, well, um, is, go ahead, sorry. No, but, yeah, definitely if anyone's looking to volunteer, then, mm. um, then yeah, come and see me because I definitely have an organisation that would be interested in, um, in having you on board. Well, that's good information. 
Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great having you on. And uh, although I knew the story about Sean, I didn't know it to the detail that you've gone into. And uh, <laughs> it's just remarkable. It's, it's, yeah, it's really great to have you on, Kim. Maybe you can have him on one and um, he can tell, <laughs> tell, tell you his version of the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which would be nothing. No, that's right. Remember. He doesn't remember. It would be a gap for eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Kim. No worries. Thank you. That was Kim Cairns on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.